Today we're going to focus on Job, Satan, and the problem of suffering. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire today. Yeah. A few days back, I answered a bunch of your questions on the book of Job. So many great questions, and it seemed that there was real interest. I could only get to a small fraction of the questions overall. So I want to dive back in to the book of Job. This is one of these days where we'll just take a break from whatever's happening in the world around us. Even if it's melting down as I speak, we're just going to focus on Job. I won't be taking calls, but I am going to be getting back to a bunch of questions that you've asked. I mean, Leviathan, Behemoth, and the, the end of the book, who are they, and a bunch of other interesting questions. But let me just give you a little background to the commentary uh, that came out last October. So my newest book at the moment, new one's coming out uh, on resurrection in a few weeks, but Job, The Faith to Challenge God, a new translation and commentary. So when I originally got the burden and vision to write the commentary, the plan was about 500 pages long about 300-something pages of commentary and up to 200 pages of special essays uh, dealing with the larger issues that the book of Job raises. When, when I finished writing it, it was bigger. We had less essays, but a lot more technical material. And the publisher, <laughs> excuse me, the publisher said to me, okay, the problem is you're writing for two different audiences at the same time. I mentioned this previously, but I want to give you a quick recap. You're writing for an academic audience, you know, scholars and professors, and you're writing for interested readers, and you're doing both at the same time, you got to pick one and either just go all academic or make it so anyone can read it. So in other words, you take all the scholarship, all the work, all the academics, all the study of Hebrew, all of the research, all the commentaries, but you put it in such a way that anyone can access it. So that's what we ended up doing. The commentaries, what, 460 pages, something like that. So in the back, the special essays, uh, after the introduction to the book, we provide a brand new translation for the book, commentary on every verse, of course, in the book. Then there are theological reflections. Who was the adversary? Job and the new atheists challenging God as an act of faith. Job and Jesus is suffering a reward for righteousness, the danger of holding to a too rigid orthodoxy. Job and the problem of suffering how would Job comfort a godly sufferer and the happy ending of Job? And then exegetical essays where we really dig deep into the meaning of certain words and verses beyond what we did in the commentary. So the meaning of in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, Job 2.10. Did he sin with his heart, but not with his lips? We get into that. The chaos monsters in Job. And there's a great Question from Josiah that I'm going to answer today about the chaos monsters, Leviathan, Behemoth. The meaning of Hophata in Job 10.3, shine forth, appear on behalf of, smile on. Then Job 13.15, does it really say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Job 19.25-27, I know my Redeemer lives. Who is the Redeemer? And what about the, the verses that follow, which are very difficult in Hebrew? And then Job 24.18-25, which is, one of the more controversial portions of Job, not as well known as some of his other passages. And then Job 
42.6. Does Job recant? Does Job repudiate what he said? Does he repent because he's dust and ashes? Does he repent on dust and ashes? We get into all these. But as we focus today on Job, Satan, and the problem of suffering, I want to take you into my theological reflections on how Job would comfort a godly sufferer. How Job would comfort a godly sufferer. What would Job say to someone in agony, to someone in terrible pain, to someone who's lost everything, to someone who's just gotten word? I mean, someone who loves the Lord and you just got word that you have terminal cancer, barring divine intervention. Or someone who loves the Lord and loses family members in a, in a terrible accident, and the family members were, were godly. What would Job say to someone like that? So let me tell you what he wouldn't say. He wouldn't say, it's clear you've sinned, repent, and God will have mercy on you. Now, Job would be the last one to say that since the sufferings he went through were not a direct result of sin in his life. He wouldn't say, things like this don't happen to the godly, so you must have opened the door. You alone are responsible. He wouldn't say, maybe you do love the Lord, but he sees the imperfections within you. He's obviously disciplining you so you can be more fruitful in the future. Take your present calamities as a warning. Now, this is some of the stuff that the friends said to Job. Does God discipline the righteous? Yes. Does God prune us so we can bear more fruit? Yes. Does the Bible say that he kills your children in a car accident to prune you so you can be more godly? Does the Bible say he strikes you with terminal cancer because you're a godly person who loves him and he wants you to bear more fruit? No, it doesn't say that. Can God help us grow through calamity? Yes. Will we go through hard times in this world? Yes. But when the Bible talks about God disciplining and purging and pruning friends, there are many, many different ways that God purges and purifies and disciplines and prunes outside of striking people dead or striking them with terminal illnesses. So I don't believe Job would say any of those things. I'm quite sure he would not say any of those things to someone suffering. I posted this November 2018 on Twitter. In tough times, God often intervenes. When he doesn't actively intervene, we often sense his presence. When we don't sense his presence, we still have his promises. When we lose sight of his promises, or when they don't seem to come to pass, we still have our future hope. A man named Sean replied, right now I don't sense, feel, see, or know what the heck is going on. Almost died this year. Lost jobs that were not my fault, and our lease did not get renewed after 11 years of living there. Marriage needs God's help, and we are separated, though not biblically. And I have been homeless much of the year, and etc. This year has been hell, for lack of a better term. What, what would... Job says, Sean, to a grieving father, performed the wedding for him and his wife. His wife graduated from our ministry school. We, we knew her from the day she was born, same age as, as one of our daughters. And they tragically lost one of their sons in a, in a freak drowning accident. And, and he, he posted in the depths and pain of his heart the, the loss, the missing of his son, five years old, I believe, when he died, and then just his, his hope and faith in God. His name was James, the dad, the, the mom, Susanna, and I put their story in my book with their permission. What would, what would Job say to someone like that? 
or to you right now in the midst of, of pain and grief, here's what I believe he'd say. I believe his first words might well be, I understand. Sometimes you just need someone to say, I, I understand. I, I've been there. I, I understand. I, I also believe he would say, it's okay to have questions right now. It's okay to feel alienated right now. It's okay even to question God's goodness or even his existence right now. Job would say, I understand, and it's okay to have the questions and, and to, to be going through the spiritual agony right now. I believe he would say, I understand. But I believe there's more that he would say, which is this. I also believe he'd say this. I also learned something along the way. God is not evil. He's not a madman, an all-powerful, totally out-of-control, unethical despot. So before you lash out against him, as I once did, to my regret, this is me putting words in Job's mouth based on the words of the commentary. Ask yourself, Job would say, if you really mean what you say, has the God you have served for so many years suddenly changed colors? I mean, think of that, friend. You've known the Lord, you've walked with the Lord, you know his character, you know his disposition. Suddenly everything goes wrong, or maybe over a period of, of years, things seem to get worse and worse. Is God schizophrenic? Did he change colors? Has the God you've served for so many years suddenly changed colors? Has the Heavenly Father you knew so well suddenly become a monster? Has, has the gracious, long-suffering Savior you've loved so deeply turned into Satan himself? He might say, we often speak out of ignorance, failing to realize how small our understanding really is. Can you find it in yourself to say to the Lord, this makes no sense to me, and it violates my understanding of who you are. I see nothing kind or compassionate in this bereavement right now, but I'm willing to say that I want to trust you. I just don't know how. Is that a step that you can take? Yeah, the book of Job teaches us, take off your religious mask and be honest. And don't get squeezed in convenient theological categories or get caught up with neat little theological maxims. Open your heart, speak your mind. But the book of Job also teaches, be reverent even in the midst of pain. God is as faithful as he is sovereign, and he's as good as he is eternal. And whatever happens, whatever we suffer, he remains irreproachable. And, and Job might remind others and say, hey, there, there is a happy ending, and God is a redeemer. And I'm telling you, as surely as the sun rises, he will come through. And, and he will help you in the midst of agony and pain, and he will be there when no one else is there. And when everything fails, he ultimately won't fail. And if you lean on him, he will make you better for it. Regardless of why things happen, we may never know in this world. Regardless of why things happen, regardless of whether the devil was behind it, regardless of whether God had a plan we're not aware of, regardless of whether it was circumstances in this world that we don't understand, or perhaps some of us have opened the door. Maybe calamities come our way because of our sin and our folly and our foolishness. That can happen too. I mean, we're not like Job in terms of no one like Job on the earth. That's not us. You know, we're very few of us would be at that 
level. But whatever the reason, if we'll lean on the Lord, we can grow. We can become better people. We can end up saying, I know God in ways I never did. My own life has changed for the better, and I'm able to enrich the lives of others. And either in this world or the world to come, there will be reward and there will be payback. And to the degree of loss you've suffered, if you lean on him and honor him and worship him, he will restore either in this world or the world to come. So the larger problem of suffering we address throughout the book, we address in some other theological reflections. But I wanted to set the tone for today's broadcast by by talking about the big picture, big issues. We come back, I'm going to answer a question about Leviathan and Behemoth, and then talk to you about Satan, Hasatan, the adversary, give you a little more insight about his nature and what he does today from the book of Job. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10 to his disciples when he sent them out to preach and heal, he said, freely you've received, freely give. And even though there have been years and years of study of the book of Job and hard work to to get insights and, and seeking the Lord for insight, on the other hand, everything we have is freely given. So such as I've been given, I want to freely share with you today insights that I've learned from the book of Job, answers to your questions on Job. I answered a bunch of questions a few days back, but I'm taking another day. There, there's so many good questions. I wanted to take more time, and it seemed there was real interest in the broadcast. People were helped and enriched by it. Of course, if you're able to get the commentary, Job, the faith to challenge God, a new translation and commentary, I truly believe you'll be blessed. And if you have the commentary, and you've been blessed by it, even if you haven't read every word of it, please just uh, put up a rating, a review on Amazon. It doesn't have to be long. Uh, Amazon.com and ChristianBook.com. It's just a great way to encourage others. And it'd be a way that we can partner together that, that if you appreciate the labors that we're doing, that you can let others know. Here's a Facebook question from Josiah. I'd love to hear Dr. Brown address some questions around Leviathan in the scriptures and what this creature is. In my recent researches into this topic, there seem to be three prominent interpretations of the nature of this creature. One, a dinosaur. This is the position that seems to be held by conservative young earth creationists like Ken Ham. Since I come from a conservative background, this would have been my default position in the past. Two, a crocodile. This is a position put forth by you, Ross, and I've heard it previously, though mostly in derision from people holding the young earth creation view. Three, a personification of chaos in the sea. This is a position I've recently discovered. It associates reference to Leviathan, Rahab, dragons, serpents, whales, and Yom, the sea, with other ancient Eastern legends and suggests that references to these concepts in scripture are allusions to other ancient Eastern concepts rather than an actual creature. As a scholar of Hebrew and Semitic languages, as well as a conservative Bible scholar, I would be very interested to hear your views on this. I imagine you have addressed some of these issues in your commentary on Job, but I've not been able to purchase it and review it for myself. I'd be especially interested to know if you find any of these positions to be untenable based on the text or if you find any more probable. All right. I love the question, Josiah, and the way you've laid it out, a lot of thinking behind that. So, yes, 
there is an extended theological reflection in the back of the book where I treat these exact questions. And then within the commentary and several different passages, the third chapter, the ninth chapter, and then beginning with the behemoth and Leviathan chapters at the end of the book, deal with this there. So we definitely address this in detail. So let me say a few things. The Bible definitely speaks of chaos monsters. You said, what? Well, what is Satan referred to? How is he referred, spoken of in the New Testament? For example, Revelation 12, how is he, how is he pictured uh, in other parts of the Bible? The, uh, Revelation 20, the ancient serpent. Revelation 12, he is pictured as a seven-headed dragon with ten horns and ten crowns. Is he not? A seven-headed dragon. That's how he's pictured. Leviathan in the ancient world, there, there are representations of him, you know, in, in the idolatrous paintings or, or inscriptions or engravings and things like that. You know, you have these different uh, things that have, that have been preserved. So you, you have an engraving and Leviathan is pictured as a seven-headed sea creature. Seven-headed, yeah. And, and then in the Psalms, just, just do a little study for Leviathan in the Psalms. You'll see a reference to the, the heads of Leviathan or smashing the sea, splitting the sea and, and the heads of Leviathan. Now, sea in Hebrew is the word yam, but in the Canaanite religious world, yam, sea, was considered to be a god and also represented powers of chaos. In other words, the sea can overflow or the waves of the sea or you know, the banks of a river can overflow or the tempestuous ocean and sea, and you're out at sea, and it's violent. So that was considered to be a god, a chaos god. So when God, in Genesis 1, calls on the all the waters and says, just be gathered in one place, boom, just speaks that word. That is extraordinary. That is God demonstrating his power, his authority over the powers of chaos, Notice that it's when Jesus is out in the sea in a boat that, that the storms come. It represents the powers of chaos. And when you get to Revelation 21, there is no sea in the New Jerusalem because it represents the powers of chaos and darkness. So at creation, God demonstrates his power and authority over these chaos powers represented in the waters, the sea, and says, be gathered in one place. Boom, that's it. That's it. And in Job, it mentions, as, as God is revealing himself to Job, in Job 38, and he says, hey, I, I said, stop right here. Waves, you stop. That was the same demonstration of God's power over powers of chaos. When, when he splits the sea, it's the same thing. It's twofold. His power over nature, splitting the sea, but his power over chaos powers, these demonic powers behind this. And he, and he, he splits the head of sea. He, he, he crushes the, the heads of these chaos powers. Leviathan in, Leviticus, in Isaiah 27, 1 is mentioned as a fleet serpent, a, a twisting serpent, the exact same way he is described about 700 years earlier in a Canaanite text from a city called Ugarit. So in the idolatrous faith, it was Baal who smote Leviathan. Isaiah 27, 1 sets it straight and says, no, it's God who smites him. Uh, uh, there are other references to these chaos powers. Rahab, not just the woman, and not just a name for Egypt, but Rahab is also another name for one of these chaos powers. So when we get to the end of Job, who are Leviathan and Behemoth? Now, Behemoth is plural for Behemoth, and Behemoth is just like domesticated cattle. You know, it would include oxen, for example. 
you know, that would be behemoth. But uh, the plural behemoth is obviously speaking of something bigger, greater, more powerful. Some think behemoth and Leviathan are simply the uh, hippopotamus and the crocodile. The problem would be there is the hyperbole is too much. Why is God showing the hippopotamus and the crocodile? Now, there there are many scholars who who hold to this, many, many. But why is he showing them to to demonstrate his mastery and his power and saying nobody can can subdue them? Now, they're definitely powerful. I mean, to this day in Africa, hippos kill hundreds of people every year. And who among us wants to be around a crocodile? But the animals have been caught, they have been subdued, they have been killed, okay? Whereas the text here makes them so formidable that nobody could do that. Not only so, some of the descriptions don't seem to work exactly. And the crocodile, he seems to be kind of a fire-breathing dragon, unless it's all hyperbolic speech. So that's possible, but you put a big question mark next to it. What about dinosaurs? Well, if young earth creation were true, and these people would have living knowledge of dinosaurs, then yeah, that would be something that could fit there. And, and those, obviously, no human being could conquer or tackle. And God is saying in both cases, hey, I, I made these. These are like play toys to me. I, I made these. The problem is, of course, if you can sustain the young earth creationist argument. So the majority scientific view would be no, that's not sustainable. But of course, young earth creationists have their strong arguments as well. So that's another possibility, but with a question mark. What about the fact that they are just spiritual creatures? That's all. They are demonic creatures. They are chaos powers. That's all. I mean, elsewhere, the book of Job mentions Leviathan and things like that in terms of a chaos power. And, and, you know, you've got references in the third chapter, for example, in the ninth chapter to some of these other powers. So maybe they're just spiritual powers. Could that be? Problem with that is that it's they're described in such detail, and, and you know, eating like this, and in the water like this, and the, you know, if they're just spiritual creatures, that's going way too far. So to me, you have to x that one out. Interesting, but x it out. And there are scholars that support all of these. So there's a fourth view, which is my view, which is that they were describing some type of earthly creature. Now it could have been a dinosaur if dinosaurs existed or were in the memory of the people. Or it could be referring to some extinct animal, all right? So it could have been similar to hippopotamus and, and or crocodile. It could well be extinct animals that were known to the people then, all right, but not known to us today. Ferocious, terrifying. However, they also represented demonic powers. They were associated with spiritual forces of chaos and destruction. You know, if, if you think, for example, with Native American folklore and this, this, this one has the spirit of the wolf and there's the animal, but then there's the spirit of the animal. And so certainly in the ancient world, we know that there were animals that were associated with demons or with demonic power. So that to me is the best way to explain this because the text clearly has a spiritual element, but then it's even more clearly speaking about beings that they knew about. You say, but isn't that odd for God to talk about them? You got Job in his agony, like, all right, God, I can't argue with you. I want to prove my case in court because I know I'm not guilty. I know I don't deserve what's happening. You're just not right. I know that you're better than this, God. Something's not lining up here. 
God says, all right, let me talk to you about these animals, these creatures, these chaos powers. It's like, what? But what you realize is this is part of God's revelation of who he is, humbling Job and making Job know that he spoke out of turn by wrongly accusing God. God giving Job a revelation, not just of the goodness and beauty and wonder of creation, but of God's complete mastery over all the powers of chaos and darkness. Because again, that's what seems to have been attacking Job. It's like random chaos, darkness, powers, you know, Satan himself behind it. This is God's way of saying human beings can't master them, can't touch these. And the powers they represent cannot be subdued. But to me, they're just play toys. I actually created everything that is Job. Who are you to lecture me? Again, part of the fascination, the mystery, and the surprise ending of Job, which then has more surprise endings as you get to the end of the endings. Okay, back with more of your questions and more about Satan in the book of Job and beyond. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on the Line of Fire. Special broadcast as we focus on Job, Satan, and the problem of suffering. I'm not taking calls and not interacting with world news around us. It's a follow-up to a show I did a few days back. We, we got so many questions when I opened the door for questions on Job. To, to my very pleasant surprise, actually, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of questions on Twitter and Facebook. Almost immediately when I posted, I, I got to a lot of them. There seems to be a real good response to the show. So I want to dig in more. If you're just tuning in now, the first half of the broadcast, we asked what Job would say to, to a sufferer, to a righteous, godly sufferer. What would Job say? What counsel would he give? How would he speak into that person's life? That's one thing. And then we looked at Leviathan, behemoth, who these monsters are, these beings, are they dinosaurs, hippopotamus, crocodile, chaos monsters, who are they? We dealt with that. Now I want to focus on Satan in the book of Job and beyond. Over on Twitter, Bartnick asked, what exactly is Satan's role in that story, and where did he come from? Now, when we answered some questions earlier, a few days back, we, we tackled some of these questions about how Satan Satan, but I want to dig a little deeper, and I want to tie it in with a comment from Greg over on Facebook. Although there are always lessons we can take from the pre-cross saints, Job ends up being a lesson in why we shouldn't apply an old covenant understanding of the nature of God and spiritual warfare to new covenant believers. Now, let me make clear, the nature of God is the same old covenant, new covenant. The nature of God is the same from creation through the Sinai covenant, through the new and better covenant. The, the nature of God is the same from Genesis to Revelation, but how he works with us, deals with us, where Satan stands in the narrative, that has definitely changed. So there's a, a, a lot of truth to what Greg is saying. So let's back up a little bit and, and, and think about this malignant being that is called Hasatan, the adversary, could also be translated the accuser, or just as a name, Satan, or 
the devil. He is a tempter. He is a deceiver. He is wicked. Jesus says about him in John 8, 44, that, that he is a liar. He is the father of liars. He is a murderer from the beginning. That is his nature. And if we apply John 10, 10 to him, it's more broad than that. But if we apply it to him, he doesn't come other than to steal, kill, and destroy. That certainly speaks of his nature as well. So where does he come from? As best as we understand it, based on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which are both speaking of earthly kings, king of Babylon and king of Tyre, but then going behind the scenes to satanic powers uh, that were inspiring or driving them, those texts speak of a fall of this heavenly creature. Helel ben Shachar in Isaiah 14, the shining one, son of the dawn. That word shining one in Hebrew was ultimately translated by Jerome in the Vulgate as Lucifer, light bearer, and then when the passage was interpreted with reference to the devil, Lucifer, Lucifer became a name for the devil. But in itself, it simply means shining one, light bearer. So you have these accounts which indicate pride entering the heart of this exalted, beautiful, shining, spiritual being, one of the higher angels entrusted in certain ways with, with high authority and, and great responsibility before God. But although God is not the author of evil, God gives his created beings, angels, and then human beings free will to make choices, to say yes or to say no. And when we freely choose to say no, then evil is actuated. It's a mystery, isn't it? God does not create evil. God is not the author of evil. And God gave, for example, Adam and Eve, we see it, absolute freedom of choice. When they chose to disobey, then evil was actuated. So that's what happens with Satan. Now, when is he cast down to earth? Well, Revelation 12 speaks of it. It describes him as the one who accuses us, God's people, before God day and night, and he's cast down from heaven. Did that happen before creation? Did it happen after creation? Is Revelation 12 speaking of something that happens after the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that Satan is cast down from heaven? Or is it speaking of something that will happen at the end of this age before Jesus returns there? Many, many different understandings of it. But certainly, he was cast out of his heavenly home in the presence of God. Now, Judaism, ancient Judaism, and, and reflected in books like Enoch and things like that, spoke of seven heavens. The New Testament seems to speak of three heavens. Paul mentions the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. That's when he was in God's direct presence. And then we, Ephesians 4, Paul speaks of principalities and powers and heavenly places. So many think you've got the physical sky here is one heaven, and then the, a spiritual realm above that, which is now inhabited by demons and Satan. And then the third heaven, the heavenly realm where God himself dwells. That's so many Christians understand it. But obviously the Bible gives us limited information. There's only so much that we need to know. Even if we knew more, it's so much we could understand, right? Where is heaven? I mean, we're talking about a spiritual realm, and then we're talking about natural realms here. So it's, it's all beyond our natural understanding, but there are things revealed in Scripture. So you might say that Satan has been cast out from the heavenly presence. That happened when he sinned, and then he was, he's been inhabiting this spiritual realm, the second heaven, if you want to call it that. When was he cast down to earth? Is that a 
final thing that happens at the tail end of the age? Or is that what the situation has been since the cross? But then Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about we're wrestling with spiritual powers in heavenly places. So obviously there's, there's Satan's not cast down totally on earth. now. So a, a lot of questions here. But what's clear is at least in Old Testament times before the cross, God could gather all the created beings, all the angelic world, all right? Because that's basically what you have, the created beings, the angelic world, could gather them all before him. First Kings 22, Job 1, Job 2. And among them could be demonic powers, demonic spirits. Among them could be Hasatan, the adversary himself. Now, what do we read about him in Zechariah, the third chapter? It, it's, it's a fascinating passage there. Zechariah chapter 3. And, and the prophet has a vision, and he sees Yehoshua, the high priest. Uh, he's also called Yeshua, the high priest, for example, in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's, that's how his name is spelled. The same person, Joshua, Jesus, Yehoshua, Yeshua. So look at what it says in Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan, with Satan, the adversary, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Adonai, the Lord said to Hasatan, to the adversary, Adonai rebukes you, Satan. Indeed, Adonai, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebukes you. Is not this man a brand plucked out of the fire? Now, Joshua was wearing filthy garments and standing before the angel. It seems to be part of the devil's accusation. You're nothing, you're unworthy, you're filthy. And, and, and before the angel who answered and spoke to those standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from them. Then to Joshua, he said, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and will dress you with fine clothing. Then I said, place a clean turban on his head. And it goes on from there. So this is what the adversary does, the accuser. He accuses. Now, I do not believe that he has access to the throne of God the way he did in the book of Job before the cross. And certainly, we have a revelation of Satan that Job and Old Testament saints did not. Later in the Old Testament, there's a further revelation of Satan. This is one of the reasons we know the book of Job itself was written later. The account is ancient, but it's actually written later because of the explicit reference to Hasatan, Satan. That comes in later where he's spoken of so blatantly in, in the Old Testament. Hence, you have him loud and clear in one of the last books of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. I don't believe he has access to the throne of God the way he did in the Old Testament before the cross. Remember that the heavenlies have been purified now with the blood of Jesus, so I don't believe anything unclean can enter under any circumstances, as I understand it. That's one. Two, we not only have revelation of Satan that Job would not have had, we have authority. Yes, the end of Psalm 91 does speak of the righteous treading on serpents and scorpions, and that language is then borrowed into Luke chapter 10, verse 19. But certainly through the cross and resurrection and the empowerment of the Spirit, we have authority over Satan beyond what Old Testament saints would have. We have authority to drive out demons. We have, yeah, I know David played the harp and the unclean spirit left, but this is the norm for us now in Jesus to have authority in his name over all the power of the enemy. And therefore, we do have power to rebuke. Now, we can't rebuke circumstances and, and rebuke everything. You know, trust me, I've been in traffic jams overseas and we're trying to get to a meeting to preach and we're rebuking the traffic. It's like, oh, hasn't parted yet. This guy have to show up a little late, you know. Um, we, we can't just snap our fingers and, oh, we're going to change the weather. You know, for example, I fly out af after uh, radio today, uh, doing another show after this. I fly out and uh, there's bad weather patterns and things. Well, I don't just have the power to rebuke the weather. 
I cancel all hurricanes. I cancel all bad weather. I cancel. You might think you have the power to do that, but check again. <clears throat> Nonetheless, we do have authority over the enemy. We do not have to be subject to him. We're in a battle. There is suffering that he brings on. First Peter 5 talks about it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking who may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers and sisters in the world. So there is a battle. There is warfare. There is hardship that is often overcome in the midst of our battle with him, but we are overcomers and he is defeated. So there are profound differences there in that respect. We still look at Job and there are endless lessons because many things still happen in this world that we don't have explanations for and that go contrary to what we expect and go contrary to what our theological expectations are. How do we respond? In that sense, the book of Job speaks just as relevantly today as, as it did the day it was written, and, and just as relevantly in every generation. Yet this is some of what we understand. What about Revelation 12? Is Satan still accusing us before God day and night? Was he cast down from doing that? There's a lot of debate about exactly how to interpret that in Revelation, the 12th chapter. But Satan is still accusing us. There's no question he's still accusing us, and he's still accusing us before God in that it's in the presence of God that he's accusing us. I don't mean the heavenly presence. I mean right here. That as God is looking on at our lives, that Satan's there, oh yeah, oh yeah, and what about this, and what about that? And we are feeling those accusations, which make us feel unclean and unworthy and miserable and compromised. Yeah, what's the matter with me? And on and on and on. That's the voice of the accuser. We get cleansed, we get washed with the righteousness of Jesus. And just as as Joshua's filthy garments were removed in Zechariah 3. Our filthy self-images removed and we become righteous in Jesus. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I hope you've been enjoying our study today in the book of Job. Job, Satan, the problem of suffering. If you listen a few days back, we answered a bunch of your questions on Job. Today we've been covering broader ground, but looking at a few questions as well. So uh, material taken from my commentary, Job, the faith to challenge God, a new translation and commentary. I want to read my translation of Job, the 13th chapter, up through verses 15, 16. And, and I think you'll get some insight as uh, notice the emphasis on, on words about arguing or reproving or confronting. or, or just, I want you to hear that. All right. So I'm, I'm reading Job 13 from my translation. Look, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I myself know too. I'm not inferior to you, but I, for my part, would speak to Shaddai. I desire to note, note this, argue with God. There's the root yachach, which occurs over and over in this chapter. So we need to grab hold of it and see what a major theme it is. He's saying, look, you guys talk, you friends, you got, look, I, I know, I know what you, I could, I could spout your theology too. I used to think the way you think. To, I, I know all that. But I want to talk to you. I want to talk to God. I desire to argue with God. But you, for your part, are forgers of lies, worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would just be quiet, that would be wisdom for you. Hear now my argument. 
Pay attention to the disputations of my lips. Will you speak unjustly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you be partial toward him? Will you dispute? Notice dispute, dispute. Or you see how these concepts keep coming up? Will you dispute on his behalf? Will it go well if he investigates you? Will you deceive him the way you deceive a mortal? He will surely reprove you. Same root. Same root as argue. He will surely reprove you if you show partiality in secret. Indeed, his majesty would terrify you and his dread would fall upon you. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your rejoinders are rejoinders of clay. Stop talking with me that I, yes, I may speak. Come on me what may. So Job's saying, I have to have it out with God. I, I'm going to argue my case with God because I, I know he can do better than this. And I know the God I love is not the kind of God who does these terrible things, and yet he's doing terrible things. So I, I want to have it out. And I want to say, look at my life. Have I, have I been that wicked? So this is a constant theme. Why do I risk my very flesh? Take my life in my hands. Look, he's going to kill me. I'm waiting for it expectantly. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So it's not though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. He speaks of his trust in many other places. But rather, look, he's going to kill me. I'm waiting for it. And, and I translate it, waiting for it expectantly, because that's what the Hebrews is indicating. Yeah, I, come on, I know what's going to happen. Look, he's going to kill me. Yet. I will argue my ways to his face because I can't back down because I, I, I know that he's a better God than this. And I know I don't deserve this. That's part of the, quote, faith to challenge God. So I'll read again from verse 14. Why do I risk my very flesh and take my life in my hands? Look, he's going to kill me. I'm waiting for it expectantly. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. And this will work out for my salvation since no godless person could ever come before him. In fact, I'll, I'll keep reading to the end of the chapter. It's such an amazing chapter. Hear my speech carefully and let my exposition be in your ears. See now, I've prepared my case and I know, I really do, that I'm right. Who then can bring charges against me? For then I would be silent and die. Just don't do these two things to me. He's talking to God. And then I will not hide from your presence. Remove your hand far from me and don't terrify me with your fright. Then you'll call and I'll respond where I will speak, and you'll answer me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make known to me my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me and regard me as your enemy? Will you scare away a driven leaf? Will you chase after dried-out stubble? If you write bitter things against me and bring back upon me the iniquities of my youth, you put my feet in the stocks and hem in all my ways, you engrave your name in the soles of my feet. And he, for his part, speaking of human beings, Wears out like decay, like a moth-eaten garment, hence the beginning of the next chapter. A human being born of a woman is short on time and full of turmoil. Does it give you a, a bit more feel for what Job's dealing with there? And saying, the way I've lived and the way you are, God, this is not merited. This should not be like this. And, and I, I want to have an audience with you. So you kill me, but I, I'm going to meet with you and I'm going to have an audience with you. That's what he's saying. I'm going to prove my case. But then, of course, he realizes it's not going to work. It's God. Are we going to out-argue God? Right. It's not going to happen. So, a few more questions. Chris asked on Twitter, do you think the book of Job is teaching how to keep the heart centered with God while in the midst of hardship, challenges, suffering? Oh, certainly. That's part of it. 
but you're going to go through a journey along the way. You may go through agonizing pain where it seems God is distant. You, you may go through times where you, know, you, th- you think he's, he's wicked or he doesn't exist. And the book of Job is saying, continue to worship and honor him even in the midst of your pain because he is good. Because he is good. Uh, in keeping with that, over on Facebook, um, Jeff asked this, I hear that God would not allow suffering in a saint's life today. The Old Testament doesn't apply and God would not, not allow suffering or cause it. Boy, that is a terrible, terrible overstatement. No, we don't believe that God indiscriminately just smites his people. Like, oh, what are we going to do today? Oh, there's a dear sister with her kids on the way to the, uh, they're, they're doing outreach to the homeless. Yeah, let's just slaughter them today. Let's just do that. Mm. There, see that, see that teenager praying, fasting, saying, I just want my life to honor you and be pure before you. Yeah, let's, let's just uh, smite them with boils from head to toe and torture them to death. Yeah, let's just do that. No, that's not the nature of God. But God didn't do that in the Old Testament either. He was not indiscriminate and in, in just you know, smite certain ones. In fact, what you see is, is healing promise for the obedient and, and, and curses and judgments promised for the disobedient rebels under the Sinai Covenant. That's why Job, the picture of Job, even though he lives before the Sinai Covenant, presumably it's written for people as if they're all part of this system because he knows it's not supposed to happen to a godly person like this, all right? And yet these things did happen. And yet they do happen to this day in terms of unexpected suffering. If there's one thing the New Testament tells us to expect in this world, it's difficulty and hardship and suffering. Be it because of satanic attack, persecution, spiritual attack, another form of of satanic attack, be it for those reasons, or be it because of mistakes that we make, or be it because we're just in a fallen world, or be it because as we honor the Lord, he purges and purifies us, not by killing us and destroying us, but there's a suffering involved with that. What does it say in, in 1 Peter 5 that, that the God of all grace, you know, you'll be blessed by him after you've suffered a while. Now, the primary form of that suffering comes with persecution and opposition for following Jesus. But Romans 8 says that the whole world, the all creation is groaning in travail because of the pain of the human race, because of the, the pain of creation, because of the pain of the animal kingdom, the, the pain of this world. So that's a result of the fall. And Paul writes in Romans 5 that not only do we grow in grace through faith and enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus, having been justified by faith, but we also glory in our trials and our tribulation, knowing that suffering and tribulation produces character, produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. And with that, great hope as God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. So... John 16, 33, Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Acts 14, 22, Paul and Barnabas comfort, encourage the believers in Antioch and say to them that through many tribulations, through many difficulties, hardships, you will enter the kingdom of God. Revelation 1, 9, John on the island of Patmos, so in exile, suffering for the testimony of the word of God, what does he say? I, John, your brother, in what? The suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. 
So there has been a shift in terms of our spiritual authority, but the nature of God remains the same, and the nature of the challenges that we go through in this world remain the same. Um, uh, let's just see here, looking to see if there are any other questions I can get through quickly. Uh, yeah, how come God had to prove to Satan that Job was faithful? I addressed this a few weeks ago, but, but I want to come back here. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. There was a challenge before the created universe, before the angelic beings, that nobody really serves God without ulterior motives, that no one really loves God and lives a righteous life because of God and because of righteousness. They all do it with ulterior motives. And you take away all the special benefits and your creation, even someone special like Job will curse you to your face. So the integrity of God is at stake. And God wants to demonstrate to the created world, and now through human eyes reading it as well, God wants to demonstrate his goodness and wants to demonstrate the integrity of his people who love him. And ultimately, what does it say in Ephesians 3? That through the cross, the manifest wisdom is seen plainly through the church specifically, so that the angelic world and the demonic world, that all creation will see God's wisdom demonstrated. So just as God vindicates his name here on earth for all human beings to see, and he will culminate the age doing that, he vindicates his name before the angelic world again. And it not only goes to his glory, but it goes to our faith and confidence in who our God is. 